0: Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. From Madison, Wisconsin, this is Jim Healy, Director of Programming for the Cinematheque. While the Cinematheque's theatrical venues remain closed, our free View at Home series resumes on Friday, February 5th, with an exciting new release fresh from its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival A Glitch in the Matrix. Are we all just characters in someone else's video game? Could it be that we are living in a computer-simulated universe? Swallow the red pill and take a deep and fascinating dive into the rabbit hole that is simulation theory in the new feature-length movie from Rodney Asher, director of Room 237 and The Nightmare. A Glitch in the Matrix provides the compelling testimonials of several avatar-shrouded real people, along with commentary from more established experts like Nick Bostrom, Emily Podest, and cartoonist Chris Ware to explore existential questions of personal identity and free will. With his own singular style, Asher launches his investigation with a 1977 lecture from legendary sci-fi writer Philip K. Dick and playfully mixes in game footage and movie clips from The Matrix and several other Hollywood products to further illustrate how and why so many have come to doubt their everyday reality. A Glitch ultimately ventures into serious, sometimes disturbing territory to examine morality and social responsibility in a present-day world where even basic human interactions have become poisoned by media consumption and conspiracy theories. Beginning Friday, February 5, the Cinematech has a limited number of opportunities to view A Glitch in the Matrix at home for free. To receive access, send an email to info That's info at cinema.wisc.edu, and simply remember to include the word glitch in the subject line. No further message is necessary. On this episode of Cinema Talk, I speak with Rodney Asher, director of A Glitch in the Matrix, and we talk about how he put his new movie together and simulation theory's relationship to cinema history and sci-fi literature. Rodney joined us in person at the 2013 Wisconsin Film Festival to present a program of his unique short movies and the Madison premiere of Room 237, his much acclaimed exploration of fan theories attempting to decode the hidden meanings of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. We are grateful that he took the time to speak with us from his home in Los Angeles during this busy week when his movie has its online premiere and is opening in virtual cinemas around the country. We recommend watching the movie before listening to this episode. Here now is my discussion with Rodney Asher. Rodney Asher, welcome to Cinema Talk. It's good to have you. When did you first encounter or consider the idea that we might be living in a simulation? You personally.
1: Well, it was during the making of The Nightmare that one of the guys I was speaking to thought that... um, those strange things that he was seeing in you know that state heightened state of consciousness was a glimpse through the veil outside of the simulation kind of like i suppose that moment towards the end of uh, the matrix where neo sees all the zeros and ones raining down so you you had been introduced to the
0: idea through the through the matrix but you didn't really take it to heart i guess until you said as you were you were making the nightmare which is a a movie about as you said sleep paralysis
1: yeah, well I mean, talking about the Matrix or Existence or the 13th Floor or I don't know Dark City, those are all um, best I could tell <laughs> fiction. <laughs> but but you know, he was talking about it as as a real thing and I very quickly, you know, was able to discover that there were, you know, smart science guys who were poking a stick at the idea, and you know were entertaining it as a real possibility. And you know one of the real milestones, I think, is you know Nick Brostrom's uh, two th- thousand and three uh, paper. Are we living in a simulation? Where he tries to use statistics to argue that to argue that case.
0: Well, you've got some of these smart science guys in the film, including Bostrom, uh, Eric Davis, Chris Ware emily podass or at least they're widely read academics and writers uh, online and they're more established i guess but you also have uh, other experts in the film uh who i'm i'm curious as to uh, how you located them brother mistwood alex levine paul good is it mm-hmm. uh
1: how did you come across these guys was that yeah, Just well, re- internet research. Well, those guys, first off, I mean, I think those guys are really the heart of the film. Absolutely. And the other, and the other you know, experts, you know, are the color commentary. Um, and it isn't so much that um, that I found them as they found us. You know, what we did was announce that we were making this film and set up a place where people could reach us. You know, and the floodgates were opened and person after person after person, um, and largely man after man after man, for whatever, for whatever that's worth, um, lined up to, uh, to share their stories. Like I found in, um, in the nightmare that where people were really anxious to share their stories of sleep paralysis, um, you know, it seemed like, you know, these guys, you know, were you know, really anxious to, um, to speak their minds and to tell their stories. And then uh, you give them
0: CGI avatars in the film. Did they get to choose those uh, avatars
1: themselves or, wor- or design those themselves? That would have been you know much more fair, but um, <laughs> I worked with uh, this comic book artist, Chris Burnham, who's an amazing pop storyteller who also has a real flair for uh, character design and you know he watched an early cut of the movie um got his sense around who these guys were and what their stories were about and the two of us sort of bounced around ideas for the type of characters that they could be um or or he would just start from a blank slate depending i guess on the character and you know then uh, our animation team built them out into 3d characters that were ready to be animated you know my old old friend Sid Guerin, who goes back to before somebody goofed. If you remember that one, right. um, you know, led up the animation team, and Lorenzo Fonda was the guy, the animator who worked closely, most closely, with the um, with the avatars, and in fact put on a uh, the first sort of prosumer level uh, motion capture suit, right? One of those kind of rubber golem Lord of the Rings suits, but they finally, you know, in the year of our Lord, 2019, reached the point where you you could work with that sort of technology on an indie doc uh, budget, you know, and plug that interface into your laptop and apply it to um, animation models. Well, that's amazing. Well, it's
0: what sets them apart from the other experts in the film and, and as you said, makes them the heart of the film. I'm curious if bringing in the established uh, experts like uh, Bostrom, Um, if it's at all a reaction on your part as a filmmaker uh, to critics who objected to the fact that you didn't include similarly widely read and more established film critics and Kubrick historians when you were making uh, Room 237?
1: Oh, God, no. Um, (laughs) You're you're assuming that I take criticism better than is actually the case. Um, No, it was, in fact... You know, I think the first one of them, that I or the, the first two that I talked to um, that are in the film, Nick Bostrom and um, Eric Davis, I had originally intended to treat as just another one of these guys struggling with the stories, right? In fact, I have, you know, I don't know, I probably wasted a half hour or 40 minutes of Nick Bostrom's time for him discussing sort of his early life and where he was when he came across... Um, you know where he where, where he became fascinated enough to work out the simulation hypothesis thinking that that would be an interesting kind of divergent path that his life took as opposed to um, where the other guys went but as he described his you know opinions about simulation theory it became clear that he's not a true even though he in a sense wrote the gospel he is not a true believer he considers it one of three possibilities you know and that being the case, I thought, well first I you know I wondered whether or not I should include him, but there were passages of things that he said that I liked enough um, that I wanted to include him even if that sort of broke the rule that I had of that I'd set up in two three seven in the nightmare of only working with you know sort of civilians and eyewitnesses um, but it did and, and once I made peace with that and similarly with Eric Davis who Spoke a lot about where he was early in his life before he before he encountered the work of Philip K. Dick. Um, you know, I liked things in their interviews and thought that they added interesting enough perspectives that I loosened up. You know, my sort of um, you know my sort of Dogma ninety five rules about who's entitled to appear in these kinds of things. Um, but then I questioned if whether I should present them the same way or not, you know, since they were in sort of a different category. And I came up with, if you look at the movie carefully and, you know, if this was in a, if, if we were in a world where people could see this in a movie theater, it would be clear that their video is, is all, is has been re-photographed off of a, a cathode ray tube and is full of pixels and the scan lines. And to me, we were trying to be sort of evocative of what video phones looked like in, in Blade Runner. Um, mm. So the notion in a way that, we're hypertexting to outside of the simulation, maybe that they're peering in, you know, or we're, um, you know, we're, we're 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 dialing out to a window out there someplace from which these people are speaking. Um, so yeah, I'll, it wasn't because you know I read I read some review and said <laughs> they had a point. I'd never considered that before. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. I'll be sure to do it next time.
0: Gotcha well it's very clear the difference between the speakers and uh, as you as you say even in the HD version of watching it at home you get to see the the difference in, in quality as to how they're how they appear versus
1: uh, yeah versus the other experts well and finding the right monitor to re-photograph them off of you know was actually very very difficult because most high- definition monitors if you zoom in on them the way that the pixels and the um, scan lines photograph it's just, to my mind, you know, very ugly, and it might be, um, it might be a sign of my age that I love the way, you know, like in a movie like Network or THX eleven thirty eight, that the um, twenty nine nine seven cathode ray tube being photographed on film, the way the pixels glow and the way the scan lines um roll, was something I've always found, you know, very beautiful, and I was trying to emulate. But by the same token. I didn't want to drop the resolution of these calls down to standard definition and play them on a regular TV. And I also wanted to maintain the 16 by nine aspect ratio. But as it happens, after we had a couple of unsuccessful experiments on HD monitors and this part of the interview is going to be of a special interest to, you know, people who've gotten here from a link out of uh, popular science or, um, (laughs) um, television technology monthly. Um, I remembered a friend of mine who was an early adopter. Still had his first generation Trinitron HD TV set, you know, which weighs about 500 pounds, you know, and is thicker than it is wide because there's actually a picture tube inside of it and not the thin LCD screen. And pointing a you know uh, a 4k camera at that monitor you know finally yielded the <laughs> the results i could live with okay
0: so since uh, i mentioned i'm sorry
1: I'm, i i apologize for that incredibly boring aside but <laughs> <laughs> no i think it's
0: i think it's uh, very interesting technically speaking i mean a uh, Getting back to Room 237, since I brought it out, has, have you had any reflection on simulation uh, theory as it applies to The Shining or even any of the other subjects of your of your short films?
1: Well, I mean, they're, all three movies are about people trying to make sense of the world and trying to solve unsolvable mysteries. And also, in a way, um, if you use simulation... I mean, I think there's there's two ways of looking at simulation theory, right? One of them is... Literally, Are we literally living in a computer program created by some incredibly powerful machine located out there someplace, you know, or is it a a metaphor for the way that, you know, in many ways, we all construct our own realities, you know, and, you know, there's people in 237 and the nightmare and, you know, not just there, especially in the last few years, as as has become apparent that... Different people are living in different realities right now, <laughs> and sure. and and it's interesting to you know ask how we got there and how related is that to to this notion.
0: Especially Emily Podas talks about consuming media that constructs whole sections of uh, society as uh, I think she calls them disposable others mm-hmm. uh, in the film. And then you have, of course, you conclude the film with the uh, a, a major sequence on the tragic and disturbing story of joshua cook have you considered the implications of this idea of disposable others in the weeks since uh the Capitol riot has there been uh uh any any applications of of this into and as far as to how far it went and
1: and and why it why it stopped where it did um well certainly in a in a general way absolutely i mean there's a a couple of, there, there are a couple of ways where, you know, I think that this sort of thing lends to, um, lends to discussions of stuff like the Capitol riot. I mean, on the one hand, just because of the sort of absurd costumes, some of them were I mean, in particular, you know, what the, the Q shaman, you know, it looks like you're watching a very strange video game and maybe that's a surface level, you know, kind of criticism, but you know, the fact that, um, the images in video games are—it's no surprise that the that the images within video games are converging with reality as technology gets better, but it is certainly strange when the images of reality start looking more like video games, um, and like maybe that's a surface level comment, but it nonetheless—you know—I found that imagery kind of striking in that way, um, but also I mean we're talking about. You know, the, pe- the 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 people on either side of that thing were were operating from radically different worldviews constructed by, in part, by their media diet. Right, as exactly as Emily as as Emily Potter talks about when she's um you know sort of comparing Plato's cave to you know 21st century technology and uh, there, there was a there was a moment that i really loved where she kind of points out that the fire behind them you know and the um and the uh, puppets being held in front of it is very much like a um projection room in a movie theater you know and in a way he's sort of prophesizing how that's going to happen in the future and that's a very sticky idea
0: I want to talk a little bit more about that, too, about uh, cinema and its relation to simulation theory. But I want to just get back to Joshua Cook a little bit more. Can you talk about uh, what went into setting up the interviews with him? Uh, What special
1: preparations you made? Well, I mean, I read up on his story best I could from in in particular, there's like a long read that The Washington Post did on him a few years ago um, after the trial. But it was it was set up by um, Colin Frederick and Rebecca Evans um, at um, at Campfire, the company who produced it. And like early in this is I had my big bulletin board of ideas related to simulation theory. Um, you know, ten percent of which made it into the movie. One of them was the Matrix defense. The fact that um, many people accused of you know. Uh, you know, accused of, of major crimes, often murder as part of their defense has been the fact that they think that they, that they thought that they were living in a, in a virtual reality of some sort. Um, and so I, at one point, so I certainly thought that was an interesting thing to put into the discussion of, of the topic. And they found Joshua Cook and reached out to him. And because, You know, he's at a place now where he's just like recently written a book about his experiences. And he's trying to reach out to, you know, sort of troubled kids to help them from following in his footsteps and making the same mistakes that he did. You know, he was happy enough to share his story after a couple of conversations about, you know, the way it would be portrayed. You know, at one point when I was trying to describe the process to him, you know, he was like animation. What, is this going to look like an episode of The Simpsons?
0: Mm. You know.
1: I don't, I don't get it. And that doesn't, and that doesn't sound appropriate. So we had a handful of conversations, um, you know, over the phone and I've heard that it's more difficult to interview people in prison these days than it used to be um, for, uh, for a variety of reasons. But um, yeah, so we had a handful of conversations over the phone in the last one and the, the one that the most substantial parts of the, of, of the conversation that we have in the film we had done earlier ones inside of an administrator's office, you know, on a dedicated phone line with a very clean connection. But as it turned out that day, they just pointed him towards a um, a payphone in a common area. And there are times we can sort of hear, you know, little commotions breaking out in in other corners of the room during the call.
0: Yeah, um, he he tells a story uh, with. I say I would say, considering the content of the story, relatively little emotion. Uh, he does express uh, that he immediately felt some remorse, and as you say, he's trying to get his uh, story out there. And 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 you reveal in the film that he's going to be in jail probably for at least another twenty twenty two years. Um, how, uh, how 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 do, how does he? How does he f- feel today? did you get a sense of how he really feels about about what happened and what he did?
1: Well, I think he's co- completely over overcome with remorse um, you know about about how things went down um, you know there's a moment there's for me what was kind of a very lucky accident is that when he talked about the um that, la- that phone call he made, you know, right before right before he went down to the basement, you know, seemingly to, you know, the people within the Matrix, and he's sort of um, repeating lines that Neo says towards the end. You know, you know, because I was astonished at how accurate his memory was, you know, to that fairly long monologue, you know, we sort of blend them together in audio a little bit. And when we bring up the picture... From the Matrix film, the graphic that emerges on screen, and again, this for me was a really um, meaningful synchronicity, was the phrase system failure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about his story, there was one safety net after another after another didn't, didn't catch him. You know, that his parents didn't know how troubled he was. He talks about, you know, stories of abuse at home and at school. That you know he had undiagnosed mental illness and nobody spotted it or tried to steer him into therapy. You know even in high school, that um, even you know his father found the his web cache of him looking for looking looking up how to buy a gun in Virginia, right. and you know that conversation kind of ended abruptly and was never revisited, which is, is a, a story that I might not have been able to write, but in hindsight feels very human, you know, mm-hmm. of people, you know, of... You would think that that, that there would be another, another, another shoe would drop after that conversation, but it, it, it never happened. Um, and also, it was incredibly easy for him to buy a gun, you know, in... in in Virginia as a, as a disturbed 19 year old kid. Right. You know, so one system after, so there was like one system failure after another, after another, um, didn't stop, weren't able to, to stop this from happening. It's a very
0: powerful part of the film. For the purposes of the movie, the narrative, uh, if we can call it that, begins with Philip K. Dick in 1977. Um, And uh, but for you, are there other literary and cinematic examples that suggest simulation theory uh, prior to his lecture in 1977?
1: Well, I mean, you got The Wizard of Oz um, is plainly (laughs) as the story of a character who goes to another world. And there's questions of which world is the real world. Sure. Well, there's all kinds yeah. of dream examples in movies, but what
0: about the idea that uh, uh, we are all part of a machine uh, that exists outside of our... Yeah, well, I
1: mean, World on a Wire is one of the earliest. Um, I, I forget the date of that one, the Fastbinder, the German miniseries. Um, that yeah, was that's 73, in- uh, I think. Okay, so, that, I mean, gives, so that, that that puts it four years before the Philip K. Dick speech, although after some of his first wrestlings with the subject in books or short stories. I guess
0: uh, World on a Wire, which we showed at the Cinematech a few years ago, is based on a novel from 65 uh, by Daniel Galloway, where it lays out yeah. that, that And premise.
1: I think The 13th Floor is based on the same um, That's book, right. although you might not notice that if you watch them back to back because they're so different.
0: Sure. I didn't notice did you were you able to include clips from the thirteenth
1: floor and. There's the thirteenth the floor is in there. I mean, because there's that really striking image. I mean, if if every other part of that movie were to be lost to history, there's still such value in that one shot of the car parked on the lonely road and the guy looking towards the horizon as the mountains dissolve into green wireframe.
0: Sure. Right. Which
1: okay. is it was also like the image that they used on the poster. Um, yes. The- so so That's so right. i mean, so, so that moment is in the film and in earlier cuts there were other scenes that didn't there, there there were other visuals that didn't make it you know to the final likewise i would have loved to have used a clip from world on a wire but didn't necessarily find exactly the right place for it in the story um so world on a wire might be the first you know sort of film that covers the subject at least dead on um uh I am metropolis in a way, you know, at least talking about artificial humans. Sure. And Philip K Dick famously, you know, his two main, you know, obsessions are what is real and what is human. You know, when Blade Runner h- hitting the the latter and Total Recall the former. I mean, you 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 you're you're a better student of film history than I am. Am I missing a really significant cinematic milestone? pre-World on a Wire.
0: I like the fact that you mentioned Wizard of Oz because it you know obviously there are all kinds of implications here dream uh dream logic and and films where that have alternate realities that you know maybe it's someone just having a dream or maybe it's something else now there's uh I had a recent discussion with a uh, someone very close to me about the film Palm Springs which was at Sundance last year and and he, he was reacting to a review that referred to it as a time loop movie. And it made him very angry because he said, there aren't time loop movies. There's Groundhog Day and everything else is a remake of it.
1: Uh, no, no, um, no. I, I totally disagree. I think once we got the third, it became a, it's a, it's beca- it became a genre.
0: Right. After right? Edge of Tomorrow and Palm Springs. And, and, and is there and, another one?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's the slasher one. Happy Death Day. Ah, Okay.
0: So it's, defi- it's definitely a genre now. You, you
1: and, say, Russian do- and I don't know if we mentioned Russian doll, but I- speaking of time loop movies, um, this is a moment that you might have appreciated, but it didn't make it into the final cut, was I asked Nick Bostrom what his favorite simulated reality movie was. And, you know, I was expecting The Matrix or Existence or, you know, one of the ones that, you know, that that, that, that come up off offhand. And he said Groundhog Day. Hmm well it's
0: it's certainly philosophical um and introduces whole notions of of god and uh and and humans as 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 whoever the creator is whether it's you know god as most people know god or a, a computer uh mad computer genius i guess It it's <laughs> well, certainly
1: and <laughs> groundhog day is also a comedy and i was surprised to learn that um, while he was a college student, Nick Bostrom at one point tried his hand at stand-up comedy.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, I was unable to get him to tell me any of the to, to do any of his old routine <laughs> <laughs> in the interview, but I would I am fascinated to know what it might have been. I'm I'm assuming it it might have been adjacent to uh, Stephen Wright. It would be my best guess. But... Oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> uh,
0: the movie visually engages with the idea of cinema as perhaps a more. Uh, Primitive form of living through simulation or experiencing a simulated world, and that and it t- ties it directly, as you said, that um, Emily Potass po- points out to uh, Plato and the and story of the fire, and then it comes up at other times in the interview. Uh, one of um, one of the uh, Avatar subjects uh, talks about the idea of a film being rewound and and you know replayed for uh, him as a child uh, just uh, thinking that uh, that they're that there's that this is a movie that uh, that they're watching as they drive miles without seeing uh, a- another car so um i just wondered if you have any further reflections on this um and uh, you alluded to this a little bit at the beginning of the interview um if it, the idea of of this of cinema as a as a potential form of simulated living has become more important to you at a time when we can't access cinemas. Um, Even our cinemas a- just soon to be out, outmoded, outdated modes of technology, uh, that will be cast aside, uh, yep. on the road to complete simulation immersion, like a, like a pair of virtual
1: reality goggles. Well, well, there's a couple of questions in there. Let me, there, there um, are, let, 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 me try to hit a few of them. You know, one thing that, um, you reminded me of is that there was a um, a guide to screenplay writing that I read a few years ago that um, the one aspect of it that really stuck with me that she wrote that um, writing itself, you know, the whole idea of written language is a type of simulation, Even even drawing. And she went back to, let's say, a cave painting that shows the strategy, say, for hunters to hide you know around a clearing in the bushes waiting for an animal to come in the middle and emerge that that sort of storytelling visual storytelling in particular is a way for people to simulate the experience of a hunt without the danger right that uh, you show that drawing to kids before you take them on a hunt as teenagers, and that gives them the idea, and that allows the, and even you know around the campfire telling the story of you know when we cornered this mastodon or whatever it is allows people to um, vicariously experience that event without the danger of exposing it to them. of course, in this case, it's much more to the point of passing of communicating a particular adaptive skill mm-hmm. right you know and Movies may well educate people how to, I don't know, ask someone out on a date or how to stand up for yourself, you know, in, in a confrontation. That's certainly not their focus these days. And, you know, how, however many wonderful things happen in um, Avengers Endgame, the real world skills that I learned from watching it, you know, will probably only be abstract, <laughs> symbolic ones. Sure, yeah. But that, but that connection, I think, was still really meaningful when I reflected on it and was thinking about language and uh, storytelling and movies as sort of simulations. And simulations are, I mean, what's the whole idea of a simulation? To experience something in a safe place without having to face the consequences of it. I remember, you know, in the height of COVID or in the early days that the New York Times had a little, on their website, they had this little interactive app of... Um, um, COVID transmission and what you would do is you had a little and they were like little blue dots and little red, red dots and the blue dots you know um, were healthy and the red dots were infected and depending on what sliders you moved around the bottom you would see it spread in different ways you know and then you know sort of taking the big leap to simulation theory imagining our world as that sort of test chamber for Changing the variables and what are the results and problem solving for outside the simulation, and that's something that Paul um, talks about when he brings up the idea of GANs, right? Generative adversarial networks that you know humans working across purposes are ways of refining problems, and we take advantage of it. But if you're going to get it, but but if you're a believer in simulation theory. You know, perhaps we're solving a problem on behalf of someone out there, which is, you know, if you look at it as a religious idea, that's a radically different change of, you know, an omniscient, omnipotent creator having us here, you know, for whatever purpose, but typically not to learn from us typically not because he's a dumb schmuck like everybody else and he'd rather put us through the paces than of 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 grappling with this problem than than doing it himself i i've lost sight of the of your actual question at this point no i think you, you, you I'm, not, I'm not i'm not i'm not i'm not about to bring it in for a landing i'm like drifted off the i've completely drifted off the page
0: <laughs> well so, well let, let me uh, let me ask you then um I guess you're, uh, I would imagine you're disappointed that there there isn't an actual in a cinema screening at Sundance.
1: Yes, I'm disappointed that we're not having a giant screening in Sundance. But, I mean, it's, considering where most people are in this world, I'm not looking for sympathy for my plight for having to settle for, you know, a virtual Sundance. One that's also, you know, in some ways halfway appropriate for this movie you know which is a very screen culture movie to be appearing within people's screens and the nutty thing about sundance this year is that you know one of the fun things about sundance they have a lot of great parties right um and they didn't let the lockdown stop that that they built this virtual parties place a a film a a film party where you can access it through a browser which is kind of cool like you just see a kind of a 3D model of this bar and you can move over to other people's avatars and click on them um, and chat with them. But if you have the Oculus headset, you can literally go there, right? And me and some members of the cast and crew and other audience members, you know, the other night met in virtual reality to reflect on our virtual reality movie. And, you know, in fact, I was speaking to a critic there um, about the movie. And, you know, he was in the body of, like, a three-foot-high space alien, and I was a mummy. <laughs> and he said, well, why did you choose to, you know, present these people as avatars?
0: <laughs> Isn't that, you know, like, look around, man. <laughs> it's happening. We're, we're living it. That's right. How, how would you characterize the types of movies you make? Know, you talked about the thematic things that bind uh, Room two three seven and the nightmare and and now Glitch and the matrix together. But in terms of you, of the way you work and the and the way you st- uh stylize your films is is do you think of it as a genre? Do you think of it as a documentary? Uh, are they closer to
1: what might be thought of as an as essay movies? Well, I mean it's kind of a hybrid of all of them, right? And I I don't know that there's that many models for the way that I try to do these. You know, I think ultimately if you have to put one label on it. It's documentary because the the building block of this movie is, you know, real people telling, re- recounting their own experiences, you know, but, um, you know, there's a huge number of influences, you know, that I bring to this, you know, 237, which is largely a collage movie, um, you know, using the archival, I, I first started using, getting excited about the possibilities of archival movies by watching, you know, Bruce Connors stuff in, in film school and although I've worked in you know a half dozen other styles that's something that I always come back to and I love I, I love seeing the meaning of a particular shot or scene change by putting it into a new context
0: right by archival you mean found found footage and or uh, uh, take, taking uh, taking a movie that somebody films,
1: else so t- t- you right. know taking a movie someone else made right. <laughs> and, and, and using a piece of it in a new way sure um, but you know, I think it it's hard to you know I think for any contemporary um, doc documentary filmmaker to um, downplay the importance of the thin blue line, and you know for me what I take from that movie in particular, well it's both the, the meditative power of the soundtrack, right? Like I think it was sort of outrageous in those days for that for the soundtrack to be as present as like Philip Glass's music was in that movie, but also that the reenactments he filmed were not always reenactments of things that happened. You know, they're mm-hmm. reenactments of people of, of ideas or of suppositions or of things that people said happened. And sometimes one of these reenactments would exclude the possibility of another. Right.
0: Right. There's no strawberry milkshake in one. and Yeah. And, you uh, know, yeah.
1: and, and, and that was something I never forgot as well as in Brett Morgan's um, the Kid Stays in the Picture, both, you know, the f- playful way that he used animation, the fact that you never cut to the talking head of Robert Evans. It's just a voiceover soundtrack that brings you through, which puts it into kind of an essay movie, though, you know, I in, in my mind's eye, you know, a pure essay film is the director speaking, um, as opposed to what Brett did and what I try to do of use other people's words as the as the inspiration for the imagery that we create. And, you know, his dedication to bringing Robert Evans' per, um, point of view to the movie, you know, often, sometimes, you know, his subjective memories, right? Like, I'm sure that if you brought in Francis Ford Coppola or Roman Polanski or any of, or, or, or other people who worked on The Godfather or Rosemary's Baby, they might recount some of these stories differently, but even in places where you might disagree with the way Evans described a scene that goes to building up Evans as a character. Um, so that was hugely influential on me. Um, and, you know, to be, you know, to be honest, the way things like um, In Search Of work as a horror movie, as well as it does, you know, like what is In Search Of? It's not the, it's not the news, <laughs> uh, yeah it, it. but it's but it's not it, it, it's it's neither the news nor is it um uh the night gallery you know right it's, so, it, it's something in between and right. that gave it, it and that gave it all the more power
0: right well you you said if we have to put a label on it and we certainly do not have to but let's let's just call them rodney asher movies and i think <laughs> that that's uh that should be good enough uh, especially with with the three you've made so you asked me earlier if i could think of other uh examples that precede world on a wire and i've learned of one and it was a weird uh moment of synchronicity as as as, as described in in the movies maybe not as not as strange or, or as or as uh, uh unexplainable or certainly something that could be explained as coincidence but uh, I decided uh, to read a book a week in this new year, and I've kept up with my uh, my record, um, my, my 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 pledge, I mean. Um, and the uh, late last year, we have these uh, little uh, free little libraries that people set up, the little little bookshops, and we've it started here in Madison, and so they're they're really all over the place. And uh, I grabbed out of one about three months ago. That had nothing in it but like old good housekeeping magazines and maybe Popular Mechanics. And one copy of uh, Harlan Ellison's short stories, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, as, as the prime one. I haven't read much Ellison. I said, oh yeah, I'm interested in that. I grabbed it. I read the um, first story, which is I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, which is about artificial intelligence destroying mankind. Um, and... And then I read his uh, introduction to the book in which he says the story was commissioned for a magazine that was edited by the science fiction writer, Frederick Pohl, uh, which immediately sparked a memory in me of 1987, uh, me being interested in uh, writing uh, took, was, was, was taken out of my school and shipped to, uh, the adjacent suburb, uh, of Palatine, Illinois to spend a day at a workshop speaking with writers. And the keynote speaker for the day was Frederick Pohl, who I had never heard of before, uh, whose work I still have never read. Um, but, uh, it was immediately impressed on me that this guy was, you know, pretty well known in in sci-fi circles and, uh, and widely published. And I discovered after that day that, that, uh, you know, he he was published. I used to see his books in bookstores, but, uh, I had almost completely forgotten about that day and about what he talked about uh, until I came across this introduction in this book. And I remembered that in, in starting to talk about how at the time, 1987, he was starting to write more and more on a computer and not, uh, you know, not on a typewriter or by hand. And then that led to discussions about artificial intelligence. And I'm pretty sure, uh, if memory serves that, I probably heard the term virtual reality for the first time that day. And, and he talked about that. Um, so two days after reading this introduction for the book, where, where my memory was jarred, I saw your movie. Uh, and then re- remembered World on a Wire, looked that up, and apparently Daniel Galloway, who wrote that book, that, that book movie's based on, Simulacron 3, was hugely inspired by Tunnel Under the World, a 1953 short story by Frederick Pohl, which is about robots, or I guess androids, discovering that they are artificial intelligence who have been created to withstand the assaults of uh marketing and advertisements
1: <laughs> uh, that's very very uh, very Philip K Dick
0: yes exactly so never heard of this story before uh you know to- had my memory totally jarred by yeah. By this, but now i now I have to seek out this pole story yeah. and maybe read other things by him
1: well too. well, you know we know you can go too is like five characters in search of a exit, the twilight zone where you know they're the dolls and the right in the box, which again is adjacent to you know is is it's not specifically a computer controlled world, but it's right. very much the it, but 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 it's a very similar idea and I wonder, you know, I've never, I've never read it, but the way you described that last one made me wonder, you know, what's at the heart of L. Ron Hubbard's, um, was it the typewriter in the sky?
0: Oh, I don't know that one at all. Is that another AI it's, story? It's,
1: I don't know. I saw the book cover once, you know, and it's <laughs> literally, It, it, it I, I'm assuming it's one of those, you know, and there's, a, I think, a long tradition of stories where, where characters, you know, um, realize that they, that they are just characters in a book, you know, like mm-hmm. the Will Ferrell movie, um, Stranger Than Fiction.
0: Yes, um, right, right. Yeah, they're the tools of some creator somewhere that, that remains unseen, usually.
1: You know, and, and and certainly the idea that we're characters in a book is not a world away from in a computer, right? Especially as like Paul in the movie describes the fact that. You know, people use metaphors from whatever happens to be the science of the day, moving through, you know, the um, aqueduct and fluids to, you know, typewriters to computers with, you know, a hundred little steps, you know, along the way.
0: Sure. And now you've got me, you've got me thinking of other, so Purple Rose of Cairo is another one where, you know, there you go, where the characters come off of the screen and, Mm -hmm. and Have been created elsewhere.
1: Or Duckamuck, right? Where Daffy Duck is confronted with his creator, who's not a benevolent creator. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Perfect. Well, this was a lot of fun. It's really good talking to you and seeing you. So, Rodney Asher, thank you very much.
1: Great to see you again, Jim. It's been too long. Yeah,
0: you too. I know. Hopefully we'll catch each other again in person.
1: Wouldn't that be something?